Welcome to an NJ Spotlight Roundtable. In this program, Achieving Clean Energy in New Jersey, Energy Storage, Microgrids, and Distributed Energy Resources. We're coming to you from the Robert Treat Hotel in Newark, New Jersey, on Friday, September 20th, 2019. As New Jersey pursues its clean energy agenda, the challenge of effectively storing and distributing energy has emerged as critical to realizing the state's renewable energy potential. To succeed, several key considerations have to be addressed and met with coordinated responses. Is New Jersey expanding energy storage solutions quickly enough to allow the scale adoption of renewable energy sources? How can the state advance the deployment of energy storage technologies without sacrificing any resiliency of the traditional power grid? What role can microgrids play in enabling energy to be sourced and stored closer to where it will be used by consumers and businesses? And what kinds of incentives may be needed to ensure the state will meet its 2021 energy storage mandates? In this program, we'll hear opening remarks from Victoria Carey, Senior Consultant and Project Manager for DNVGL. After the opening remarks, a panel discussion featuring Alexandra Coleman, Director of Commercial Risk for Centrica Business Solutions, John Dempsey, Manager of Transmission Development and Strategy for PSE&G, Tom Layden, Senior Director of Distributed Systems for EDF Renewables, Mark Warner, Vice President of Gable Associates, and Assemblyman Andrew Zwicker, Chair of the Science, Innovation, and Technology Committee in the New Jersey General Assembly. The panel will be moderated by Tom Johnson, energy reporter with NJ Spotlight. Now let's go to the lectern where Steve Shallot, Director of Business Development for NJ Spotlight, will welcome the guests and open the program. My name is Steve Shallot. I am the Business Development Director for NJ Spotlight, and uh, I'm standing in although not with quite as much height. For John Mooney, uh, our founding editor, who is uh, feeling a bit under the weather today and apologizes for, apologizes for not being able to be here. Um, but nonetheless, um, I feel comfortable um, standing in and, and providing the, the comments that I've heard John um, relate to, to everyone so often, including you know, most of the people in this room who have uh, visited with our events uh, many times over the years uh, as energy is such a central topic in New Jersey and Tom Johnson's reporting is uh, essential to that. And we would like to thank everybody for, for being here. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, an engaging conversation on the topic of energy storage, which will uh, cascade into some of the larger applications, uh, I'm sure in microgrids and uh, distributed energy resources writ more largely, will, uh, will be vigorously um, debated. And um, I'd like to uh, give a couple of uh, house cleaning items before I introduce our opening speaker, um, which we're very glad to have. So uh, firstly, um, if there's anybody who's not f that familiar with NJ Spotlight, we are a 10-year-old um, news organization public, covering public policy and public affairs in New Jersey. We are uh, not-for-profit journalism. Um, we are supported by, uh, by, by, by donors and members and sponsors. You'll see on the program for today uh, information on the back about our membership. We would encourage you to, uh, to participate in a way that you felt was uh, um, merited based on the, the, what we delivered in terms of uh, uh, news and information to the, to the public. The, um, um, the hashtag for today, because there's no event without a hashtag, is uh, hashtag energy in NJ. And um, 
any comments that you can share about this event is, uh, are obviously very, very welcome. Um, there are surveys on your, your tables. Uh, we are always trying to increase the, uh, uh, the quality of these events, and your feedback is, is critical for that. If you wouldn't mind, at the uh, close of today's session, if you could offer us a few words on that, it would be very much appreciated, and we will we'll collect those on the way out. Um, today's event will uh, will produce some some uh, some collateral after the event. Uh, there will be um, a finished podcast, as well as um, the live stream will begin a little late from NJTV, but they'll be here in time for the panel. And then, of course, uh, we're expecting Tom Johnson to produce a story on this event, which will uh, hopefully capture everything. I know it'll be extensive, but it'll 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 um, deliver on the the essence of our being here. And that will be forwarded to everybody uh, who's a registrant, so you don't need to go looking for that. We will send that to you. It'll be housed on a permanent page on NJ Spotlight with the rest of our roundtables, which also can be found under the roundtables tab on our site. And um, we'll look forward to assembling all the materials there and sending them out shortly afterwards. Um, you'll notice on your table there are note cards. Those are to submit questions. Um, Rachel Holland, who's our event coordinator, and myself, will we'll just uh, be looking around the room. If you have a question and you want to write it down, please raise it up. We'll collect it, and we'll, uh, we'll feed those to Tom as he's uh, speaking with the panelists, and we'll try to work those in as uh, smoothly as we, we possibly can. Um, uh, before we start with uh, today's uh, opening remarks, I'd like to uh, thank our sponsors. Um, this could not be done without our sponsors. Their, uh, their signal of support to what we're doing is uh, not only really gratifying, it, it, um, it does help to pay the bills. And it also signals to our larger donors the importance uh, that they place and you place in the work that we do. So we'd like to, to thank you know, everybody who's, um, who's, who's been supportive of NJ Spotlight. Um, we'd like to continue those, those thanks and, and your uh, attention. The sponsors for today's event who um, make it possible for us to do these events at no charge to the public. Um, these are public forum events as they are uh, germane to everyone in the state. Um, it's our pleasure to do them with no charge and our sponsors are the ones who make that possible. And I'd like to say a few words on our, um, our sponsors for today. Um, firstly, um, EDF, which is a global energy company operating in 22 countries. It's North American division. EDF uh, Renewables has developed, developed over 16 gigawatts of wind, solar, and energy storage projects. Um, in 2019, it has committed $10 billion towards energy storage development. So thank you to, to EDF. Um, also sponsoring is Spano Partners Holdings. That's uh, Jim Spano's uh, Firm, he is a, a pioneer in the deployment of battery storage, and uh, his firm is aligned with this topic very closely. Um, as a leading developer of more than 300 megawatts of solar projects since uh, 2004, um, Spano Solar Enterprises is a prominent advocate of renew renewable energy with a vested interest in maintaining the highest quality standards and finding creative solutions to move solar and storage development forward from ideation through execution and commissioning. Um, Spanner Partners is one of the leading developers of grid-tiered CNI battery systems. In 2019, Spanner Partners launched a new venture, uh, MyResi, a company focused on the aggregation of residential solar and storage systems to create uh, functional virtual power plants, enabling the immediate decongestion of distribution lines and opening of circuits for further solar penetration. Um, 
Uh, Jim is the managing partner of, uh, of SPH and the co-founder and chief originations officer of Radiant REIT, where he has developed the industry's first solar mortgage real estate investment, REIT, um, enabling solar energy projects to developers and to finance uh, their own solar projects. So uh, thank you to Spano Partners Holdings for their, their support today. Also providing support is uh, Public Service Electric and Gas, PSE&G is the largest provider of gas and electric services in New Jersey, serving 2.4 million electric and 1.8 million gas customers in more than 300 urban, suburban, and rural communities in the state, including uh, the state's largest cities. PSCNG has four solar storage projects in service, with a fifth under construction. These installations inc increase the resiliency of pu critical public works facilities during extended power outages and also allow for better integration of solar resources onto the grid. As a part of its clean energy future proposal, PSENG is hoping to expand on those efforts by building an additional 35 megawatts of energy storage over the next several years. PSENG's clean energy future proposal would make critical investments in clean energy and advanced technology that would boost New Jersey's role as a national leader in energy efficiency and jumpstart the effort to achieve the state's clean energy goals. And lastly, we'd also like to thank for uh, sponsorship support is Gable Associates, which is a specialized energy, environmental, and public utilities consulting firm with active participation in New Jersey's marketplace policy and regulatory issues for over 25 years. Their work spans the worlds of policy and project development. They've conducted hundreds of transactions in retail and wholesale energy markets, including support for over 250 energy efficiency, storage, demand response, and renewable energy projects. Gable Associates has unique and specific expertise and analytical capabilities on energy efficiency matters and frequently provides detailed program design, cost benefit modeling, and expert testimony. So thanks again to, to our sponsors. Um, their support is greatly appreciated. EDF, Spano Partners Holdings, PSC&G, and Gable Associates. With that, I would like to, uh, to introduce our keynote speaker today for opening remarks. And I'm just going to quickly pull these up on my phone because uh, I gave the printout to John Mooney, who is not here. But I have the file, so bear with me one moment. Um, we will bring to the podium uh, momentarily Victoria Carey, who is a senior consultant and project manager at DNVGL. She has seven years' experience in the energy sector, um, focused on four years both behind the meter and, uh, and also with uh, utility-scale energy storage technical due diligence. She provides technical review of various battery energy storage projects to uh, products to energy uh, to manufacturers and developers, assessing systems performance, safety, and warranty expectations, and independent engineering review for installations uh, of those products. To date, she has reviewed more than 35 energy system uh, storage system product lines, hardware, and controls. Um, at the manufacturing, manufacturing sites, demo locations, um, and installations. Additionally, since 2017, Ms. Carey has conducted standards and safety uh, consulting, research, and risk analysis for manufacturers, developers, utilities, and regulatory agencies, notably working with New York City agencies, developing permitting requirements for energy storage systems under a NYSERDA initiative, and that's one of the things we wanted to uh, welcome her for his uh, perspective outside of New Jersey, which we can find to be really useful in these, these meetings. She's earned her BS in chemical engineering from Rutgers University, and uh, with that, I'd like to introduce Victoria Carey.
we're different heights, so I'll change the microphone location. Um, thank you all so very much for welcoming me, um, and specifically uh, NJ Spotlight for inviting me uh, to present today um, on energy storage topics. Um, I'm going to speak to you about some of the learnings that we can garner from early adopters of energy storage um, within New Jersey. I know that I'm in a room of experts, especially in New Jersey policy um, and, and market structures, and so I won't claim to uh, instruct you on those, but rather bring some insight from my experience externally. Um, as, uh, as was uh, noted by Steve, I'm a senior consultant at DNVGL. Um, I've shaken uh, hands with about six people already who said DNVGL, what is that? Um, besides being a, a little bit like alphabet soup, uh, it stands for Desk Norsk Veritas Germandischer Lloyd, which is much easier to remember. Um, and it's a global risk advisory uh, consulting and certification uh, company with 150 years of experience in maritime oil and gas and energy services. I work in our energy advisory division within the Energy Storage and Distributed Energy Resources Group. And we, in our division, uh, test batteries. We model their performance and safety. Um, and we also provide independent engineering services on energy storage, microgrids, and DER more generally. My particular focus and area of expertise, as was noted in my bio, um, is around technology due diligence and safety. So really, I get to see behind the curtain on many battery energy storage systems, their operations, their field history, and more importantly, sometimes, the contracts and regulations and certifications that undergird those claims. The drumbeat of due diligence is one that repeats starting from claim to test to demonstration to proven technologies. It's not enough for us to see specification sheets. I need to see certificates and data and field inspections to recognize that that is true. The work is driven at the end of the day by financial institutions and investors who are starting to see the exponential potential of energy storage, but want to make sure that they minimize their risk in their investments and installations. On the other side of the verification coin is safety. Over the last two years, as again was noted, I've been working side by side with NYSERDA and a sustainable CUNY initiative in New York City to facilitate the uh, conversations and transparency around energy storage technology and safety and permitting in New York City. We've been working with the fire department, the Department of Buildings, um, and many local stakeholders, as well as with industry. The work we've done has explored explosion potential and fire potential. It's explored zoning issues and uh, quandaries about a zoning code that hasn't been updated since the 60s. And how do you take a technology that's so novel and slot it into mechanical equipment that was built in 1945? They look at setbacks and monitoring and controls and all of the tools that we can really leverage to understand what's happening in a system when it's working right and what's happening in a system when it's not. There's been a whole host of topics and people in these rooms that have diverse opinions and sometimes contentious ones. There has been, because of this, some hesitancy from vendors we've seen, battery vendors, to share data. They're worried about how it will be interpreted in a new industry. And they're asking, essentially, for some of these uh, agencies for trust in their claims without necessarily demonstrated proof. And that comes back to my, my song, my drumbeat of claim, test, demonstrate, prove. 
And we find energy storage is bouncing back and forth between the claim, test, and demonstrate. And we're looking to see how we can move it forward to proven uh, solutions. As first responders are responsible, and, and Department of Building professionals are responsible for life safety, this can create somewhat of an atmosphere of distrust um, and, and sometimes conservatism in what they'll allow to be installed in certain locations until they understand truly what the risks are with energy storage and other novel technologies. They recognize that nothing is without risk. In fact, I, I supported a review and risk quantitative risk analysis that uh, compared energy storage failures with uh, more standard technologies. Um, and on a number basis, living right next door to an energy storage system we found was less risky than doing, having a daily hour-long commute in a car. Just, you know, we, we feel very comfortable with things in our lives that we're used to, um, and, and we just need to uh, help provide that data for those uh, new technologies to allow, uh, to allow comfort in, in the folks who are going to be at, at your door um, in the case of a fire. So there needs to be an ongoing conversation there. We just really, at the end of the day, need to define what the risk is around energy storage and if we've appropriately mitigated it. In both of these cases, the, the core issue of risk can be I think, as a person who works in due diligence, addressed by that due diligence drumbeat. And that due diligence drumbeat, at its core, is driving towards standardization. Folks just want a standard set of equipment and a standard set of certificates and a standard set of use cases that they can understand and put on a one-pager. It helps put bounds on their risk understanding, increasing the confidence in the projections of the likelihood of failure as well as keeping the accountant's spreadsheets in the black and firefighters out of harm's way. But that's not quite where the energy storage industry is just yet, and it's not easy to get there, as I, I am sure all of you know. Energy storage is really booming in a kind of Wild West, gold rush kind of way. Equipment prices have plummeted. Um, people will project different things out <laughs> to 2030, but at the end of the day, it just goes high on the, right down to, uh, high on the left down to low on the right. Um, people can argue about dollars and cents, but the, the truth is, is that it's becoming more and more affordable to implement energy storage solutions. And with that, deployments have skyrocketed, with the U.S. projected this year to be one of the biggest global installers by the end of 2019. There's limited, if any, regulations or standards into the, how the equipment is deployed, and in that void, folks are developing and plopping down customized energy solutions on a massive scale. Um, even overselling to the point that they've run out of product and there was a big uh, issue with uh, pipeline in batteries just last year. Battery technology is changing and evolving faster than patents can be filed, faster than certif certifications can be uh, assigned to them. And this innovation is inspiring and staggering in its variety and its potential. The most recent published version of the International Fire Code, IFC 2018, just had a category of energy storage marked other. And I can just imagine the code official trying to write all of the storage technologies that they needed to consider. They got up to 10 and they just said, never mind. There's too much variety for them to really account for every single scenario. But this Wild West environment, while it's exciting and important for the nascent industry that's developing around energy storage and frankly makes my job really, really interesting, it's not very conducive to running a grid upon which people can depend on a day-to-day -day basis. 
wildness by its nature cannot be planned for. And when New Jersey is driving towards a theoretical 100% renewable energy goal by 2050, that won't work. But I've seen the numbers in our team. We've run models on congestion and load modeling studies showing that our aging grid is struggling with load balancing and increasing peaks in an ever more electrified world. So the old system can't really get us there either. But I've seen that if you take those models and add in energy storage that's appropriately sized um, and, and other DER as well, you can address those issues. What we need is to find a reasonable compromise between innovation and steadiness. And for energy storage, this means it needs to find some level of standardization to really be the solution we need it to be on a massive scale. And that's part of the reason that we're all here today, why there's going to be a panel of experienced professionals and policymakers to talk about energy storage. Of course, it's important and inspiring and exciting to talk about what I believe is truly the boundless possibility of energy storage, about it being the key to unlocking our clean energy future. But what I think is most critical, based on my experience with financiers and with authorities across the country, is learning what can create and implement a storage device that can be counted on to do what it is needed to do. From my perspective, there are three critical pieces that drive this. I don't think any of these will be a surprise to anyone in the room. But first is the regulation in the markets. Second is codes and standards. And third is incentive programs. All of them require a conversation between industry and policymakers and should not be done unilaterally. All of them are iterative, and that can be challenging and frustrating as people are driving to reach very aggressive goals. Specifically, New Jersey with a goal in just a, just a year and a half, two years, to reach 600 megawatts of deployment in the state. First, around regulation. It will help, plain and simple, build a market for energy storage. FERC 841 has been cited frequently in the last year or so as a vehicle to value energy storage, but I'm not going to dwell on that today. As a person who has expertise in due diligence, I'm thinking about the way that policy can shape the technology. Although critical to energy storage, the energy storage market, I think a more important lesson for New Jersey is rather than waiting for a commission to define value, to use regulation to push energy storage to evolve into the value that you need. For example, PJM's sharp left turn several years back in the fast regulation or Reg D market, uh, changing the, the signal dramatically, it impacted the batteries significantly that were bidding into it. Cycling was extreme and so was battery degradation. And we've done a number of studies on those systems and, and how they've performed in comparison to their expected performance and warranties. It scared a lot of energy storage developers away, worried that their products would get beaten to the ground and then it would hurt their reputation. But now, a few years later, developers are coming back, perhaps a little more cautious, but also with a stronger understanding from practical demonstrated experience of the edge capabilities of their equipment. They've got better defined and more standardized warranties, and they have smarter control logic that can see that where the the signals are going and forecast and appropriately plan the dispatch of their system. They made claims, they were tested, and they improved. The market defined what it needed, and the industry innovated to meet that need. Second, codes and standards, of course, lay out many shells and musts. They put on paper what will be required of energy storage. 
but in the relatively immature storage market, some of those requirements are not well defined, and code developers can't define them until they have data. So in the 2018 International Fire Code that I referenced earlier, large-scale fire testing is noted as required for many installations. These tests can be expensive and time-consuming and, and sort of terrifying if you just take the data out of context. And it's not just the lab time, but as a battery manufacturer, you're asked to sacrifice several racks to just set them on fire. Please and thank you. In New York City, it's been added as a, as a requirement in a proposed rule and has been essentially a tacit rule for the last year. Many would-be battery installers have been frustrated by this requirement, noting that they can't burn their solutions to their customers when they're bespoke and customized solutions every single time. But slowly, surely, over the last two years of conversation that I've been involved in personally, there's been a, a dialogue, uh, dialogue onto what can be reasonably expected from developers, understanding that every single cell can't be burned or you wouldn't have any left, but an understanding on the other side that uh, there is an option here. You don't have to standardize your solution. People want customized products, but you can standardize your subcomponents, and authorities are feeling more and more comfortable accepting uh, a proxy set of test data um, as long as it's fully analyzed and approved by an engineer. So the lesson I would take from here, for New Jersey, is frankly, update the codes. I know that New Jersey uses the uh, ICC, but anything before 2018 has no relevant references to battery energy storage other than lead-acid batteries, and this makes it a real challenge to get the data that you're going to need to make decisions um, about energy storage solutions, as well as to drive the market forward. Finally, of course, well-designed incentive programs can ac accelerate the adoption of energy storage in your state. But just like with regulation and codes, setting a bunch of requirements without knowing what the impact is can have the opposite effect desired. You might spend a lot of money for very little result. And I've seen some numbers on, on, uh, on programs that have done that. New Jersey can learn from these, these issues in other states, these pitfalls, and can avoid them. For instance, a study in 2018 on the California SGIP uh, from the prior program year in 2017 found that the very heavily su subscribed and popular energy storage program, which was at its face intended to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, was actually in some cases increasing them. They were tracking the wrong metrics. The TOU rates were not well aligned with the dirtiest energy times, and folks were cycling to meet uh, program requirements without really needing to. They just wanted to meet the baseline metrics. However, based on that analysis, new metrics are have been defined and are proposed as a new method for signaling the best times to charge and discharge batteries. They're working to actually meet the, the goal that they set out to meet. Further, SGIP was challenged early on with oversubscription. Residential customers weren't able to actually get their hands on incentive money because it was being gobbled up by much larger uh, and faster developers of, larger, of uh, commercial installations. This was handily and promptly addressed by essentially differentiating funding by customer type. These types of learnings are clearly applicable to how NJ, uh, New Jersey, I apologize, can improve uh, and, and foster uh, innovation through incentive programs. There's a rich pool of data now, and it's ripe for study and application. 
With these three tools, I believe that New Jersey can help drive its energy storage market to a place of standardization, which will allow greater confidence in the reliability of the grid, which is really the core issue here, as it becomes more and more dependent on intermittent energy production sources. And it's critical for us to turn these renewable energy sources and use them efficiently. Today especially, I think it's drawn into stark relief with the climate change protests happening worldwide. Today's not just a day to share ideas, but a call to action. We have a responsibility to be bold and to make significant strides towards a fully clean energy economy. Because communities everywhere, including those in New Jersey, are depending on it. The storage market is growing quickly, but it has to grow up, too. And New Jersey has the tools to help guide it in the direction it needs to be most impactful. Thank you so much for your time. I look forward to the roundtable discussion. OK, thank you, uh, Victoria. That was very informative. And uh, does anybody want to ask her a question? We have some time for some questions. Okay, we'll move right on. Um, we got a good, uh, good panel here, as always, and uh, we'll start off, I'll be pretty quick with the introductions, but we'll start off with Assemblyman Andrew Zwicker. He's chairman of the Assembly Techno Science, Technology, and Innovation Committee. Is Science. that it? Innovation. You don't want to be the STI committee. You want to be the SIT committee. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Samuel, start. Oh. Sure. Uh, well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I am the chair of the Science, Innovation, and Technology Committee. Tom, how long do you want me to talk for? About four or five minutes. Five minutes, okay. Um, uh, I'm a physicist at Princeton University, so full disclosure, I am not in any way working on distributed energy. I work on fusion energy, uh, which of course is the energy source of the future, always has been. <laughs> and I know this audience knows what the next line is, always will be. Um, and Tom, do you want me not talk, do you want just introductory remarks, right? Yeah. And then we'll go on. Okay. Um, I also just want to recognize, uh, you know, once you start to recognize anybody, you get into some trouble. I don't want to leave anyone out. But I do want to recognize my, my colleague in the legislature, Assemblyman Herb Conaway, is here. Um, and I will say there are very few people in the legislature who have a technical background of any kind. And Dr. Conaway is one of the few people as well who does. Um, and then two people, uh, former Senator and now BPU Commissioner Bob Gordon is here. Right. And f past president of the BPU, Gene Fox, is here. So. And I apologize for someone else who else I'm forgetting right now. Um, anyway, so there's really interesting questions, and I'll wait till we move into some of this to delve deeper into the details. But. You know, let's start with the fact that today is a perfect day to have this panel because it is, again, a day of not just around New Jersey, not just around the United States, but around the world of a climate strike where young people from around the entire planet 
are going to walk out. And I'm leaving here, actually, right after this, to go down and, and join one of these groups. Because, you know, besides, thank you, uh, besides, besides um, I don't want to be a bummer, but besides nuclear war, the other existential threat to this planet is global warming. And so as we talk about distributed energies, we talk about solars, we talk about storage, we are in the end talking about what we as a state and what we as a society can and must do when it comes to a quick reduction of our carbon footprint. Um, that has got to inform everything we're doing. And so when we talk about how we're going to incentivize, when we talk about how we are going to regulate, when we talk about sort of the issues that come to what's the next, tech, next technology for energy storage and how much more pumped hydro can we get out of the state and these sort of things. When we talk about public-private partnerships, these are the practical problems that we have to deal with and we have to solve as the experts. But the reality is we can never lose track of what we're trying to do here. And so whether we're talking about the energy master plan, um, which is informing so much of our goals when it comes to uh, battery or energy storage, uh, when we are talking about rejoining the regional uh, greenhouse gas initiative, so that you know, if the United States has currently given up its leadership position as uh, a global warming and carbon reduction country, and that is tremendously problematic, then New Jersey needs to do what it's doing and show how to lead when it comes as a state. And I think that's what we're starting to do. And that's why we're here. So um, I'll wait till we move into the details to go beyond that. But I, I'm really happy to see that not only are we here discussing this, but we're talking about how to aggressively aggressively move into a significant, you know, let's say on the order of a five-fold increase in our energy storage in the next couple of years. Right? And that's a tremendous challenge, but that's also a tremendous opportunity. So uh, thank you for, for having me and looking forward to delving into the details. Thank you. I think we'll go uh, with Alexandra next. Okay, good morning. Um, Alex Coleman here from Centrica Business Solutions. I will just briefly give you an overview of uh, Centrica. So I, I myself uh, am an engineer by training and have spent uh, over 10 years in the energy and construction industry um, in, in actually on the financial services side. So a lot of what Victoria was mentioning was right on in terms of what the financial services market is looking for. And I'm excited to kind of give that point of view at Centrica, what we are is a global energy solutions provider. Uh, we are based in the United Kingdom. We own British Gas, Direct Energy, a North American brand, which you're, I'm sure most of you are familiar with. Um, at Centrica Business Solutions, what we're doing is we're pivoting the organization from some of the more traditional energy supply to distributed energy resource development into our client base. And so we have over 4 million customers in North America, 250,000 CNI commercial industrial customers. And that's what I'm really focused on, developing energy projects into that customer base in addition to growing that customer base. Um, 
And as I think about the conversation today, uh, my role in the organization is the commercial risk and underwriting director. I have a team of underwriters who are evaluating the investments that we will either sell to third parties, the capital markets who are interested in investing in our sector, in addition to deploying our own balance sheet and centric shareholder money. And I think that's an important point here to remember that there is a lot of third party capital capital that is interested in investing in this sector, but we have to make it bankable. We have to make it risk adjusted to the points that Victoria was making earlier. So I'm really excited to dive into those details with you today, and thanks for having me. Okay, thank you. Why don't we go to John Dempsey, uh, he's Manager of Transmission Development and Strategy for Public Service. Thanks. Thank you, Tom. So my name is John Dempsey. I'm really excited to be here today with you all. Um, I, I like to think of my job as one of the cooler ones at PSCNG because I get to touch all of the new non-traditional things that are happening and how they impact what is a, a fairly traditional regulated utility. But obviously PS, I think, wants to get into some of these technologies um, as evidenced by our, our Clean Energy Future filing. And my job is to, again, find ways for, for how we can integrate them into our traditional operations. And I think storage is a really interesting example of a new technology that if it were, you know, 20% of the cost that it is right now, we would use everywhere around our system in a number of different ways. And so we're really excited to, as we prepare for that future, which may be in five years or, or 20 years, we're, we're excited to get our hands dirty now and see how we can actually interact with some of this stuff. Um, but, uh, but it's certainly an interesting time to be at a, at a regulated uh, utility, and so I'm happy to give our perspective uh, on the panel today. Okay. Why don't we go to Tom Lawton, who's with uh, EDF. Good morning, everyone. Uh, first, I want to thank a couple of people. Uh, first, Tom Johnson at New Jersey Spotlight. Um, New Jersey Spotlight has been a really great has done a really great service to the renewable energy industry in New Jersey, and I really, really appreciate the work they've done. And Tom has always covered uh, the topic really well, so thank you, Tom. Another person here that uh, I really want to thank is Gene Fox, the former uh, president of the Board of Public Utilities. We have over two gigawatts of solar in New Jersey right now, which is good. Uh, really good. Uh, it needs to be better, but uh, we wouldn't have two gigawatts without Gene Fox. So thank you, Gene, and thank you, Tom. So we mentioned in my intro that EDF is a global energy company. We're in 22 different countries. In North America, we focused uh, almost all on grid-scale wind and solar until about five years ago that the company decided to invest in distributed generation. Uh, we see as a company that that is the direction energy is going. Uh, we've made a big commitment. Uh, it was mentioned already that we're, we're committing $10 billion to energy storage over the next several years. Um, so I work in the distributed solutions group. That's where my background is. Uh, some of you may know me, but um, I've been doing solar since uh, in New Jersey since 1992. I started with EPV, a thin film um, manufacturer of, of PV. And then went to World Water. World Water was uh, a company that did solar water pumping and power systems in uh, uh, emerging countries. 
I was in 14, 15 different countries in Africa, Pakistan, Philippines, doing uh, solar water pumping. That was a really interesting time for me. Um, and then I, in 2000, I joined Powerlight, uh, who was one of the pioneers in CNI uh, solar uh, for flat rooftops in particular. Powerlight was acquired by SunPower. Anyway, during that period of time, uh, I've always been on the East Coast, always focused out here. New Jersey's been a very uh, important focus for me. And we have over, uh, I did over 100 um, projects, CNI projects in, in the region. So in 2012, I, I, I broke away and started a startup uh, called Solar Grid Storage. Uh, I saw the opportunity in energy storage and the need for it uh, and created this company. And we did some projects here in New Jersey we were acquired by Sun Edison um, a few years later. Uh, that was a good move for us uh, in many ways, but not in long term, uh, if you know what happened with Sun Edison. Uh, so Sun Edison went to Chapter 11 at one point. It was the largest renewable company in the world for a while. But then I realized that, uh, that if we're going to do energy storage, you need a balance sheet. Uh, and that's why uh, I went to EDF. EDF uh, is a uh, A-rated company. Um, it's not going away, huge balance sheet, uh, and that's been really important for us because storage, by its nature, is risky on many, many levels, right? It's technology because it's new, it's regulatory because it's changing, it's markets, um, there's a lot of risk in it, uh, but also a lot of opportunity, and that's why I'm excited about it. My own personal interest uh, in storage is that it is the key to enabling more renewables, uh, wind and solar, and um, we need that for our planet. So I don't know if you've seen, but uh, Rocky Mountain Institute came out with a study just last week uh, talking about what they call clean energy portfolio. Uh, and basically what they have shown is that in 2019, the clean energy portfolio of wind, solar, energy storage, and demand reduction is now cheaper than building gas peakers or gas power plants. So it was a tipping point. That's really, really, really important. Uh, and it showed that um, it's now cheaper. And if you look at around 2035, it will be cheaper to build new clean energy portfolios than it is even to run gas power plants at that point. So there's going to be a point where there's going to be stranded assets in natural gas generation because of uh, renewable energy. Um, and that doesn't make sense for us to be launching in that direction. We should be doing something now to prevent that from happening. And, and um, when they looked at it, they figured uh, you could save about $29 billion for ratepayers uh, if you just do not continue to build pipelines and build the gas generation uh, that is in the pipeline right now for the next five years. So for me, in the industry for so long, this is a huge tipping point, and it's a really great opportunity for us to do something serious now to uh, help climate change. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. And finally, we have uh, Benton, sort of cleanup, number five, Mark Warner, uh, Vice President of Gable Associates. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, this is a very timely topic. Um, uh, Mark Warner with uh, Gable Associates. Uh, Steve introduced our firm earlier, so I won't say a lot about Gable Associates, other than to say that 
Uh, I lead a team that helps develop advanced energy projects. We work with uh, end-use consumers, we work with policymakers, we work with utilities, uh, especially helping to pioneer new systems in the marketplace. We were one of the first consulting groups to help develop solar and energy efficiency projects in New Jersey. We are now very active in helping to develop storage, microgrid, electric vehicle markets in New Jersey. Um, so um, maybe as part of a segue to the conversation, let me just say a little bit about uh, building on Tom's comment, why I think storage is so crucial. Um, when you think about the portfolio that is going to make up the advanced energy solutions that we need to achieve our goals, uh, storage is probably one of the most desperately needed solutions, and it's also probably one of the least developed commercially. And when I say commercially, I mean things like business cases, business models, the risk assessments that Victoria was talking about, um, and all the things that go into real companies building real products for real customers. That doesn't really quite exist yet for storage. You can do it. There are a lot of projects that have been done, uh, but you have to sort of find the special case where it will work, as opposed to something that can really be done on a broad scale yet. The reason it's so desperately needed is for two reasons. One is the electric grid as it exists today is amazing, but it's also fairly inefficient. And the reason it's inefficient is because we have consumer loads that are always changing. It's always varying up and down. And we have this massive machine called the grid that has to cycle up and down to keep in step with that load. Well, that ends up being a fairly inefficient way to run a giant machine. Uh, and then to make it worse, we have to design that giant machine to the worst case conditions. We have to design that giant machine to be able to operate when the load is at its greatest, even though the system is rarely in that state. So that means that the grid as it exists today is very inefficient, and that has a big impact on how we operate things, how we finance things, what the costs are for the ratepayers, and so on. So storage is a, is a huge technical innovation that can change that. It can eliminate the need to keep that big machine in continuous lockstep with the changing demand. We can put a buffer in the middle that allows us to make the grid more optimal than it is today. Secondly, if we want to get to the high levels of renewable energy that we know is needed, we absolutely have to have storage. Solar and wind, as we all know, are both intermittent resources. We can't have people all of a sudden being, need to use less electricity just because a cloud comes by or the wind stops blowing. Storage is going to be part of firming up the supply that comes from solar and wind. And without the storage, we won't be able to get to the high levels of renewable energy penetration that we need. So that's why I say that storage is desperately needed. There's a huge opportunity to optimize the grid and lower costs and improve performance enabled by storage. And we absolutely have to have it to achieve our renewable energy goals. Um, now, I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about some of the challenges, about why we sort of can't make that miracle happen yet. So I won't say too much yet about what the commercial challenges are. But the bottom line is that the business case just doesn't quite exist yet on a broad scale. And there's a lot of things that need to happen around changing uh, the structure of the marketplace, providing incentives, perhaps, to help bridge the gap until we can get there, and then building the business models and the, and the commercial structures that make that happen. So I'm sure we'll say more than about that as we get into the discussion. Um, but let me just close with, with two other points. One is, I talked about why we need it, but we also need to recognize that storage is going to be massively disruptive. 
It's going to change the way we, we fund and operate power plants. I mean, right now we have baseload plants and we have peaker plants and a bunch of stuff in between. We may get to a point in an ideal world where everything's a baseload plant. Uh, that's a very, very different world than what exists today, and the existing market structure wouldn't know how to deal with that. Um, so, uh, thinking about utilities, right now the way utilities recover their costs is related to the shape of the power curve. If we change the shape of that power curve, which is what storage will do, it changes in a very fundamental way the way we pay for utilities. So storage is going to be very disruptive about the fundamental economics behind regulated entities and the economics about transmission and distribution assets and the economics behind generation. And so we need to think about how to enable making this happen on a large scale for all the reasons that I mentioned, while also being mindful about the disruption that's going to result and making sure that we can make these changes in a, in a long-term way. And just to give you an example of, of kind of what a brave new world we're living in, I want to leave you with this thought. Uh, I'm doing a lot of work right now on electric vehicles. Uh, new Jersey also is making large commitment to electric vehicles. We have a goal in this state now to put 330,000 electric vehicles on the road by 2025. We've got about 25,000 on the road right now. So we've got a lot of work to do, but each one of those electric vehicles is going to have a pretty good sized battery in it. If those 330,000 vehicles by 2025 were each able to not just take energy from the grid, but put it back onto the grid as well, our goal for 2025 represents over two gigawatts worth of storage capacity that's going to get paid for because people bought a new car. So if part of the challenges in storage is figuring out how to pay for it, let's leverage the fact that people are now buying cars with big batteries in them. And if they were, each of those cars was willing to contribute 15 kilowatt hours, which is less than a quarter of their battery in most cases, at peak time, that's enough to provide two gigawatts of generation for the grid for over two hours. So that's a significant peaking asset that's gonna happen because people are buying electric vehicles but it won't happen by itself. We need to do things in the market and with technology in order to help make sure that we achieve that outcome. So it may be that the best way to get storage into the grid is on four wheels, but it won't happen by itself. And I'm not saying that, it'll, that we should do EVs instead of storage. We need a lot of different kinds of storage in different places with different business models, but it's probably part of the solution. And I just share, it with, share that idea with you so you have an appreciation for how big and complicated and interesting this space is really becoming. So that's just to kind of kick things off, Tom, so well, thank that, you. Very well done, and it raises the question, which are the challenges that all of you talked about, the risk, the financing, the lack of commercial applications, what are the biggest challenges and which should be tackled first by New Jersey to move this process forward? And as I think Alex mentioned, or maybe it was Victoria, hey, we got a year and a half to get to uh, 1,600 megawatts of energy storage, and we're less than, I think, around 60 in New Jer Jersey. And most of that's from uh, hydro pump. So, so what are the big challenges? So maybe I'll just give a short answer yeah. and then pass the mic. Um, the, the, the most obvious and most immediate thing is that if you want to build a project providing storage, you need a revenue stream to pay for that investment. And right now, those revenue streams are very difficult to realize. 
Uh, those will depend on where you put it. You could put the storage up by the power plant. You could put it in the distribution system. You could put it behind a customer's meter. Wherever you put it, there's got to be a way to harvest the value that that storage provides. And given the existing market structures in PJM and given the existing rate structures behind the meter, those harvesting opportunities are very difficult. So right now, if you try and add up how can I make money with a battery compared to what it costs, it's hard to make it work out. You can, there are projects being done, but it's not a large scalable solution yet. So I think one of the biggest challenges is how can we how can we make changes in our market structure uh, in order to allow storage applications that are delivering value to get paid for that value in a reliable and trusted way? And until we get to that sort of promised land, we probably need some incentives to help bridge the gap between here and there. Uh, but until that happens, you don't have business cases. So. And, and maybe come up with a potential solution in a, in a way that we've been working with utilities actually um, to to accomplish just that. So we are we have been successfully developing energy storage projects in other markets where incentives exist. But I think it's really important to consider the locational benefit of that battery. And so what you're really trying to do is say, well, how much is a battery worth in Trenton versus how much is a battery worth in Newark, right? And I believe that the energy master plan in section 5.1.4, I did my homework, um, calls for non-wire solutions, right? And so a way that we have been successful, frankly, in accessing the capital markets and third-party capital in addition to getting a project off the ground is leveraging a non-wires utility program, which has said, basically, I know that in this location, I have a bogey. I'm going to have to essentially build a new upgrade to a substation of some sort, right? There's some amount of capital I'm going to spend and rate base. So if you can do it for less, I will take it, right? And I will then save my ratepayers money, right? So then I come in and I say, oh, great. So I need you to pay me this amount of money up front and then this over time. Because if you pay me over time, then I can access a lower cost of capital because I just gave the bank a receivable from a very steady credit, which is a lot different than just an upfront incentive payment that doesn't really give you the certainty of revenue for the long term that investors need. And so this is just one example of a solution that could be applied here in New Jersey, kind of related to the energy master plan that could be very influential in the region, but I think the locational benefit of the storage has to be considered. Another example of why we need more women in the uh, industry. They do their homework. Um, so uh, we're not gonna hit our target, <laughs> okay, by 2021. There's no way we could do it. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't accelerate wh what, uh, what we're doing here in New Jersey. Um, and I, I, and I have a lot of experience developing market, uh, markets. I mean, Mark Warner and I have been at this f together for a long time. I'm really happy to be on the panel with him. Um, so the fastest thing to do is provide some incentive. I mean, that's the easiest thing to do. Uh, and the easiest way to do it is some kind of rebate because it's easy to administer. It's simple, understandable. Uh, there are better ways to incentivize, in my view, uh, but that's the simplest, fastest, uh, best way to get moving. It's basically a jump start, just like what we did in solar. 
solar started with rebates, and then we moved to SREX, and now we're going to move to something else. I'm not sure what that is. But, um, but anyway, um, so, and, and we've seen evidence of this. I mean, California always, you know, ahead of the rest of us, um, they've had a rebate for a while called SGIP. It was mentioned. Uh, New York now has an incentive that's uh, based on kilowatt hours, which is the way to do it, uh, and it's a, it's a rebate. Uh, and the numbers are well known, uh, and they've already s committed about $66 million to energy storage in New York, and, and those are projects that are already underway. And they've got another $50 million um, ready to go for the next round. So there is a way to do that. I would propose doing that as soon as possible. There are ways to monetize energy storage now in New Jersey. They just tend to be merchant. They're not contracted. They're not, you know, they're, they're, they're risky because they're not contracted. Uh, so the rebate helps a lot. And if you do solar and storage together, which is what I would propose, you get the 30% investment tax credit. That's a big bump. Those would be the first projects in my mind in New Jersey. And we could do that fairly quickly, uh, and we should. So I think uh, everyone sort of touched on the biggest challenge. It really comes down to whether it's a rebate, a tax credit, an OREC, an SREC, a ZREC, uh, a, what are we going to call storage? Where do you have SREC? So we'll need to call it STREC. Um, where's the money coming from? I mean, this is the biggest concern and the biggest challenge is the money has to come from somewhere because it's clear that the business case to accelerate, as everyone has already talked about, needs the incentive to push so we can get to our goal, whether we reach it or not, but how do we accelerate as quickly as possible? And so what are we going to do and what models can we come up with that don't automatically put the burden onto the ratepayer number one? And in particular, um, well, that would be true for all ratepayers, what do we do about the enormous economic disparity between various people? And how do we come up with a incentive model that acknowledges that we have an enormous economic divide in the state as a whole? I think that's a critical challenge. And so we start talking about public-private partnerships. We can, I can see uh, my friends in the back who talk about a state bank uh, all the time and have been pushing on that. So are there business models that can reduce the burden on the ratepayer is I think the, the key challenge that we have here. And then the last thing I'll say just because um, it's almost personal, I guess. So I am one of the 25,000 people that owns uh, an electric car in the state right now. That's a good thing. But as you were talking, I'm going, I don't know if I want to give you, I understand why, but I'm not so sure I want to give you 25% of my battery life if I'm driving up to Newark on a particular day. And so I think that's, there's another challenge from a technical perspective, of course, from a policy perspective, of course, but there's a human nature piece of it where I could feel myself reacting viscerally to something, even though I knew what you were saying was, was correct. And so that's another challenge. I don't know how you would address that. And that has to do with overall, how do we electrify in New Jersey well beyond putting in charging stations or rebates to purchase an electric car is range anxiety and everything else as you disrupt technology. 
I, I just I have to respond a little bit. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Um, so I, I agree with a lot of what you said. Um, and if you want to look at economic disparity and you want to incentivize that, there are ways to do that. I mean, community solar is an example of that. If you want to juice it up with storage, we could do that. So there are ways to do this. Right now, ratepayers are paying for the inefficiency of the system, right? And we need to make investments that make it more efficient so it benefits all ratepayers at any economic level. Okay, so that's important. And we know how to do it. We've been doing this for years in solar. We know how to do it. So there is no excuse anymore uh, for not finding a way to do it soon. Uh, the challenge is money. It's where you could find the money. I, I definitely understand that. Um, and I, 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 so I understand that. So we need to find a, a place to grab some money. You know, there's EVs, there's solar, there's wind, there's now nuclear. Um, but the, the, we need to find some money. If we do, we could very quickly uh, get some activity in storage. And we need experience in storage because it's new stuff, right? So we need to understand it. We need to learn about it. The investors need to understand it. Customers need to understand it. So we need stuff in the ground ASAP. I want, yeah, so uh, but before you d uh, say something, I just want to mention, uh, I agree Solo's been tremendously successful in this state. But the legislature, in its wisdom, decided a couple years ago that the system is way too expensive for ratepayers. We're paying over half a billion dollars a year subsidizing this sector. Um, the question is, how does uh, New Jersey avoid repeating that mistake, overpaying for energy storage, and as Tom sort of mentioned, maybe overpaying for nuclear because we paid for it a third time, some people would say. So how do we devise a system that's going to deal uh, address that issue? I'm sorry, John. I'll, 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 just, I'll just dance around that nuclear question, if I may, because I'm about 200 feet from uh, the bosses down the street. Um, no, just a couple of things on some of the comments. Uh, so prior, I've been at PS for about three years. Prior to that, I was at, at Constellation, which is part of Exelon, developing storage projects. And what I can say about uh, Tom's point on the uh, unhedged revenue streams, I know we did a number of projects, and you know I think some of those projects ended up not turning out quite as we in intended. And I think it, it's going to make some of these developers a little gun shy until there is some really fully contracted or, or maybe 50 to 75 percent contracted projects. To Alex's point about non-wires, you know, I, I agree. We have a, a component of our filing that does talk about non-wires alternatives. Um, I think, you know, there's probably different perspectives on, on the ownership model. I think PSENG is, is sort of an all of the above, uh, 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 of the opinion that all of the above could work. So um, in other markets where there are incentives for utilities to be in the non-wire space. Um, there are times when the utilities implement those projects on their own because there's some benefit they can provide that developers cannot. And there are times when private developers do those projects too. And I think uh, we certainly uh, recognize that's a valuable model to uh, consider as we're implementing some of these things. And um, you know, and the third thing I just think, I, I kind of go back to our perspective here is both, there are traditional models uh, throughout the country where storage is being deployed uh, to serve a utility benefit. And they're sort of non-traditional things. Like I said before, if storage is, is a lot, lot cheaper at some point in the future, 
it would be transformative to us. So it's not just about a non-wires or solving an overload, it's about voltage on a circuit. You know, it's about, um, you know, we, we have a, a, a filing, or excuse me, a, a component of our filing discusses mobile batteries when we're doing construction projects at substations. So when you do a project at a transmission substation, you have to effect, effectively build a second substation all around that to take that station offline and support the load pocket that you're in while you're doing work there. And while we're doing that, you have to roll in all this big equipment that's very inefficient. You use it once a year maybe, and, and you, it's this big expense. But if we could somehow use a mobile energy storage asset to go into that place and reduce the load on that station down to make that construction project a lot less expensive, to use a lot less equipment, we think that's a really interesting use case, which is not not like on every battery manufacturer's brochure, but it's something where, again, if this technology gets much cheaper, we'll just be the prudent course of business for a utility. So there's a lot of ways we can get our hands dirty here to, to, to think about some of these challenges. Okay, Tom, I think you wanted to. No, no, no. I was going to challenge that solar has cost too much, but I'm going to let these guys do that. <laughs> well, but let me respond to your question, though, not just about whether solar costs too much, but really the bigger question about, given the approach we took in solar, what can we learn from that about how we approach storage? So, um, you know, Gene and Tom and I were in the room at BPU in 2004 when the solar carve-out was being created. Remember that day? And we were talking about, uh, what, 79 megawatts worth of solar was going to be the big goal. Now we have over 2,000 megawatts of solar. So it shows how successful that program really was. But there is some merit to the assertion that maybe it wasn't as, as efficient as it could have been. And so what can we learn about how we approached incentivizing that market as we think about storage? And one of the essential challenges in solar when the SREC program was created was that it was fairly high risk. In most cases, that revenue stream was not securitized. So if you're a banker or you're an investor and you're trying to invest in those solar projects, you have to account for that risk premium, and that makes solar more, more expensive than it otherwise might have been. So that's a good case where the design of the policy affected the way the market behaved and the associated costs that went along with that. So we can learn from that. On one hand, we like market solutions because it avoids having to come up with money, but market solutions by themselves have some inefficiencies and have some risks that then bear costs. So it's a little bit unfair to say we want market efficiencies, but then we want it to be the absolute lowest cost as well. Those two things don't often go together. All right, so I think we can learn from, we did things in solar in a certain way and it was very successful, but there are other more efficient ways to do it, especially around how we reduce the risk on the revenue streams that go along with that investment. And as we think about incentives, I think we need to think about strategically what we're doing there. On the surface, the optics are that Somebody's going to write a check somewhere to help get a particular project done. And it's real easy to say that, oh, Grandma in Trenton is just paying for some corporation to get equipment. That's true on the surface. But what you're really investing that money in is accelerating how you scale up that market. Because that's what happened in solar. The solar programs worldwide were successful because they helped the solar market get much, much bigger and much more competitive faster than it otherwise would have, and that's why solar is cheap today. So we need to think about these incentive programs as not just helping to get some particular projects done, but investing in bigger scale that reduces costs for all future projects. And that's a much bigger and more strategic perspective around what those investments are. 
Okay. Well, I think that one of the key points that Tom made was that solar plus storage is actually a likely good candidate to kind of kick off the development of storage. And as you think about that, and to your point on solar development in the past and how successful it's been, it's been about the use case, right? And that goes back also to Victoria's initial point of we need standard use cases for storage. So you pair solar plus storage, you want the ITC. Well, we all know there are constraints to the ITC. That means that the battery has to be charged 75% at least by solar. You want to take advantage of that free money from the federal government, right? So let's make sure that whatever policy you're going to put in or incentive program that will be out there will allow investors to be comfortable that the storage will first be charged by solar and then will participate in the market. And you need software and controls, which is what Centrica Business Solutions is working on actively to be able to monitor and control the battery and prove to the IRS that yes, I do deserve the ITC or some portion of it given that piece. And I think that solar plus storage is particularly interesting for New Jersey given the long peak Right, so that that's a very important use case for storage to then tack on to solar. Just two quick comments. Um, first of all, solar is not too expensive; it never has been. Uh, yes, the price is dropping down, and that changes bu business models. But you got to the key, I think, natural tension that exists here, which is. The first one is the short term, where's the money coming from, right? And that is whether it's private money or public money, whether it's risk, who's assuming the risk, versus the longer term, as, as you talked about, accelerating a sector or disrupting a sector or moving us as quickly as possible into something that's new and vitally important. And in the calculus of it may cost us X to get this accelerated, but we will save 5X, 10X, 100X, whatever that might mean, that's a true statement. But the natural tension is still going to come down to the short-term payment. And I think that's the struggle here. Um, one of the things that we haven't talked about uh, today is what role does microgrids play with energy storage. Anybody want to jump in and handle that? Yeah, so, yeah, go next. yeah I mean, I, I'd say, you know, uh, microgrids as a, uh, as a use case or a model are, are so specific. I think it's a really interesting uh, challenge to to find multiple different facilities and string them together. I think the challenges are mostly commercial and, and credit and risk-wise. Um, you know, as the utility, I, I know we are certainly uh, working with, I think it's eight municipalities are, are in the town center microgrid program. Um, but when we're looking at those, it, you know, some of those projects are looking to string commercial buildings that have their own value to resiliency with uh, public sector facilities that may have a totally different perspective on, on what they need to, uh, to do to stay up. I, we were just speaking with the gentleman from Montclair State that has a really interesting project. And for a campus like that that has a big load, it's, it's certainly delivering a tremendous amount of value at, I think, a price that is lower than the, the alternative of, of buying uh, utility power. Um, but some of the smaller ones that are maybe less uh, scaled uh, run into some of those more credit and, and risk challenges. That, um, that probably need to be addressed. I, I suppose Centrica could probably, I, I just jumped in there, sorry about that. 
Yeah, let me just add, though, I would probably ask it the other way, which is where's the role of storage in microgrids? Um, I think it would be really hard to build any kind of sophisticated microgrid without a significant storage component. So, um, and as we're thinking about that, uh, you know, we did two of those microgrid project feasibility studies, and we were looking at how we can use renewable energy as part of a resiliency solution for town center um, DER microgrid. Uh, and we included storage as part of those, and it was really crucial to make it work. But in those cases, we were actually mixing several things together. There was renewable energy, there was storage, there was this microgrid architecture to hook them together, and there was still some dispatchable generation because you can't always count on the sun or the wind, and if you did it exclusively with storage, you would need a huge battery that's really expensive. So you can optimize the economics by having the right amount of dispatchable fuel generation. Well, it turns out in this state, trying to mix those things together is really, really hard. There are regulations and laws in place that basically make it impossible to do what would technically and economically be optimal. So we have some work to do around those, those challenges in order to be able to build real systems uh, that combine those, those pieces together. I think there are a couple of challenges with microgrids um, that are significant, right? So first, they're typically very capital intensive. So people are trying to build these large, idyllic, very efficient projects, um, and, and sometimes not taking into account the level of return that investors are looking to achieve when they start to invest in a microgrid. And this goes back to the risk reward profile that we were speaking of. And in particular, as you think about the way that storage can play a role, to your point, is you can access merchant revenue streams via the storage that will then boost your return, right? And then will attract the capital that is potentially trying to access the microgrid development in the first place. I don't know if that was me. <laughs> Time's up. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, getting back to the cost on um, storage. Uh, John, you mentioned if it dropped 20%, um, would be all in and doing it in a variety of ways. Where is the cost? like uh, today, are, are we going to see, see with energy storage the kind of uh, price de decreases that we saw uh, with first with solar and now uh, with off offshore wind where the prices have dropped like 50% in five-year time periods? Well, I think there's two reasons the answer will be yes. One is electric vehicles are driving a massive, massive increase in scale for storage. So the, the declining prices in batteries will be driven primarily by the ramp up in EVs, and that will have a benefit in fixed storage applications in addition to the scale that that application provides. Second one is there's still a huge amount of innovation going on in battery technology itself, and there's announcements virtually every day about somebody's discovered a new chemistry and we don't need lithium anymore and so on. So the combination of EVs driving scale and the huge remaining opportunities for technical innovation to reduce costs and increase performance, I think will will get us over the threshold that John's talking about. And it's really, it's not an if, it's just a when. Is that five years away or 10 years away? Somewhere within there. So I think those are the drivers at the moment. Yeah, and, and we're seeing the drop in, in pricing already. I mean, it's pretty dramatic, and we expect that to continue. Uh, there's actually a shortage of batteries right now around the world. Uh, there's so much demand for it. And again, driven by electric vehicles. Um, 
but yeah, you know, so you have the cost side, then you have the value side uh, when you're building a project. And so one of the fun things for me personally with storage is there are a lot of ways to use the storage and uh, it, it fosters creativity and, um, just in the financial model. Uh, so we need to figure out how to have more value. Incentive is part of that, but <clears throat> allow us to monetize these various uh, uh, value streams. Um, that's really important. And then you're going to see uh, just, the just by having the deployment, the financial community is going to be more comfortable with it. And so that's going to help accelerate it. I think in the next three or five years, it's just going to be massive amount of storage. Um, my company is committed to all grid scale wind and solar projects will have storage in it. Um, and from what I could see, especially in New Jersey, there's no reason to put solar in without storage. Um, and so I, you're going to see continued drop in price, f ways to monetize the asset uh, that make it more financeable. The, uh, when you say there's no reason to put uh, solar in without storage, is that include the residential sector? Or are you talking mostly commercial? Well, my, yeah, my background CNI, so it's mostly commercial. I mean, on the residential sector, it's interesting because people want to have it, right? So no matter what the cost, people are buying uh, residential uh, storage uh, um, projects. And remember, a lot of this started after Sandy, um, and there was a lot of activity in New Jersey and people freaking out about you know reliability. And so there was activity that's kind of calmed down, but now it's time to ramp it back up. Okay, um, we got a lot of questions from uh, members who signed up, uh, uh, and one of the questions is, uh, will storage be more important behind the meter or uh, in front of the meter, and why? So the question sort of implies that one or the other is, is preferable, and I guess my view is that we're going to need it in multiple locations throughout the architecture. And three to focus on are that if you put storage up by the power plants, that could be a good thing. If you put storage somewhere in the middle, like say at a substation, um, that would have be a good thing. And there are cases where storage behind the meter can have positive impact as well. One of the advantages, by the way, though, of putting it behind the meter is that that affects everything all the way up the architecture. So if we just put a battery into every building and every building now just looked like a trickle charge rather than natural load, everything up in the rest of the architecture benefits, distribution benefits, transmission benefits, and generation benefits. So to your point earlier, where you put these things makes a big difference. Um, and I think ultimately there will be a lot of value in behind the meter storage um, but we don't have the rate structures in place today to really be able to do that uh, generally. Um, but regardless, I think it'll happen there, but elsewhere as well. We need it. We need it everywhere, to be honest. I think I have a similar answer. I would just say that a lot of a lot of people are talking about distributed energy resources being more resilient and more cost effective than the grid. And I'll just say, let's not forget about the investment and the innovation that our grid delivers to us every day, right? And, and so the investment we put into that grid in the first place and the fact that distributed energy resources and storage in particular can play a role in delivering more value to clients and more to our clients, right? Actual delivered value into saving them money on their energy bills, 
right? And, it, and which allows them to invest more in the businesses they're actually running in New Jersey, right? And also allows the grid to have more value derived from the storage as well. So I think there is a way, and, and it's behind the meter and in front of the meter for sure will be the solution, but I think it's also back to the location and the value that you're deriving for multiple stakeholders in the system. I just remember a couple of years ago, as part of the BQDM program, you know, there was a, I think a special behind the meter incentive, is a special behind the meter demand response program that Con Ed had, and uh, the, the Brownsville area is very residential, and so what you found there was it was really challenging for some of the aggregators to get enough load to meet some of the commitments to be able to participate in that program. So I think when you have, let's say, a bunch of residential customers, it's hard to go in and individually sell a battery to, you know, 100 people at, at 20 kW or 10 kW or something like that. So I just added that to say it's, it probably depends on the location and the application and the types of load that you have uh, in whatever circuit you're trying to address. Well, that sort of brings up another question uh, that was submitted by somebody in the audience. Um, what... Uh, what are the regulatory burdens like at PGM and at the utilities to uh, promotion of energy storage in DER? And are they as challenging as the things we talked about earlier, like the uh, risk and uh, problem of finding uh, given value to these projects. I hope you're not implying PSE&G isn't easy to work with, Tom, because that's no, obviously uh, not. No, 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 I'm, I'm joking. The, 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 uh, no mention was no, no, made no. of public I'm, service. I'm, I'm, I'm just teasing. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I have to say, uh, I, I'm not as familiar. We actually have some colleagues back there. Ahmed Musa is the gentleman in the white shirt uh, back there raising his hand. So he works in our distribution planning group. So his job is really to address some of those integration issues around when you are uh, integrating load at say the, the lower KVs, the four 13 KVs, um, what needs to happen on our end to make sure that's safe, uh, make sure it's integrated well. So I, I unfortunately can't speak to how challenging it is relative to other utilities. You know, I just say our perspective is always we, um, we want to accept any technology that comes in, we don't want to be an impediment to, to deploying that. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of how Ahmed, I think, and, and his team go about uh, managing that, that level of system. One very tangible way that PJM could uh, increase investment in storage, I think, is by reducing the duration requirement. So uh, other markets are closer to two to six you know, hour duration to provide capacity. And there have been multiple studies that have shown that that could reduce the peak by gigawatts um, at a shorter duration. So I think that's something that PJM could consider. What is it today? 10. So yeah. as, as we think about that question, um, it's important to realize there's two different domains here. One is what is PJM and its market structures and how do those affect your application, and the other one is what's happening at the local, local in essence, utility level. So in New Jersey, we can make storage work in some cases for commercial customers because those customers have demand charges. So if it's the kind of load profile where you can go in and say, hey, I can put in a system that looks like this and make your demand charges go away and your bill will go down and I can harvest that savings to pay for the storage, you can make that work. But in the residential sector, we don't have those kinds of rate structures. Um, so 
um, it's really hard to do uh, storage in the residential sector without the kind of economic incentives that you can harvest to get value out of that storage. Now in California, where there's been a lot more storage done, they've created some of those rate structures to make storage attractive in the residential sector. So that's, that's sort of an obvious one here in New Jersey. Uh, so let me let me comment on this. Um, so uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission uh, created this order, 841. It basically tells all the uh, grid operators that they can't discriminate against energy storage. That's how I, that's how I, I see it. Um, and this idea of PGM requiring to have a 10-hour asset is discriminating against batteries because we don't typically have batteries that last 10 hours, right? Uh, it's usually somewhere between, you know, quick response and up to say four, four, five, six hours. So, so that's one thing. Um, my own bias is that I, I, I think um, almost all these uh, benefits, services that we could provide uh, the grid can be done be from behind the meter and that we ought to have access to those markets. So uh, besides reducing our peak demand uh, charge on the utility bill, we could bid into the frequency regulation market, uh, the wholesale market, if we were allowed to, um, and other grid level services. Um, we could do that behind the meter. And then the multiple values behind the meter of resiliency, of energy arbitrage as demand reduction, um, those are all uh, captured behind the meter that uh, you don't get, some of those you don't get when you're in front of the meter. John, you wanted to go? Oh. Yeah, well, I was just teeing off to Mark. Mark is really the EV expert in the state, so he's, he didn't really talk about that too much, but for those who don't know, Gable's really been active in that. And um, just in terms of this sort of residential um, time of use rate or, or demand charge question. It really applies to EV adoption as well. Um, for the utility, if you have five, six neighbors all plugging in their Teslas at, at six o'clock, uh, it's, it's tremendously disruptive. It's, it's actually, uh, it gives Ahmed back there nightmares. I'm calling him out twice in five minutes. He, he can't sleep at night thinking about these Teslas these people are gonna buy uh, or, or bolts or, or whatever. Um, just because it really is disruptive. We don't have that level of data um, to see how we plan for that and, and how we can uh, handle that. And so one of the things that we've talked about in our electric vehicle uh, proposal was some more innovative rate structures to incent people to charge at certain times to give us the ability to say, okay, uh, if you want to plug in your charger, we'll, we'll get you charged by 5 a.m., whether we do that from 2 to 5 a.m. or from 6 to 9 p.m. the night before. Um, that's all part of the same conversation. I don't want to put an EV... Uh, flavor to this chat, but it seemed applicable. Though that's a different story. Let me just add on what John said, though. The, um, so yeah, a lot of the same questions about how you, how you economize storage will apply to EVs as well, but let me just quantify the potential impact. Um, so if half the cars in New Jersey all plugged in when they got home from work at the same time, that would represent about 21 gigawatts of new load on top of the existing peak. That's double the existing load in the state. And as many people in this room know, it's the, it's the peak load that drives a lot of this cost. So that's just an example of what John is saying. And that's just half the cars do it. I mean, we're potentially you know, 10 to 15 years away from that point. So um, this is a potentially enormously disruptive um, issue. 
Um, and we want EVs to be a helpful thing, not a harmful thing. So we released a study at the beginning of last year that looked at that in detail. And it turns out that if you implement smart managed charging programs, which is what both PSENG and ACE are proposing, um, so that you can manage when that electric vehicle charging happens, you actually not only avoid the bad thing, you create a good thing because you start to fill in those valleys at night and you can dilute the costs now over a larger volume. So there's an enormous benefit to managed charging programs that allow utilities and maybe other market players to use the, to, to manage those assets so that they're helpful to the grid and not harmful for the grid. But in order for, and that's part of the, part of the issue with hydrogen, by the way, is when we're talking about star charging batteries, you're now talking about an electricity asset that can be used for load management, that can make the grid more optimal, and you miss that with hydrogen for the most part. Um, but what this really leads to is a bigger conversation, which should be our next workshop, Tom, which is um, in order to do all these miraculous things that we're talking about, we need a much smarter grid than we have today. I mean, today the, the grid is predominantly one way. The power goes from the generators down to the consumers, and it's managed on predominantly a predictive basis. I mean, there's people in this room that know exactly how much energy is going to get used at 11.30 tomorrow, and we run the grid based on that, that way. But with the kinds of things that we're talking about, we're going to have energy moving in a bunch of different directions at the same time. If you look at any given point in the grid, it won't just be going one way like it does now. And, and different participants in that architecture will be playing different roles at different times. You could be a generator one day and a consumer the next and so on. And you have to have the intelligence in the grid to be able to do that so that the control systems are adaptive in real time rather than just predictive. So, so just moving from one way to multi-directional and predictive to adaptive is one of those fundamental disruptive architecture changes that I talked about earlier. And we have virtually nothing of that in place in New Jersey today. We, we have a lot of work to do to make the grid smarter so that renewable content and electric vehicles and storage can be an active part of, of the system, and today it really can't. The broader strategic implication of that is we're moving to a world that Anytime you take electricity or give electricity, it's not just an energy transaction, it's also an information transaction. And without that information transaction, you can't do the energy transaction in a smart way. Right now, the information piece is pretty much missing. So uh, John wants to thank you for d making a pitch for <laughs> AMI. Uh, <laughs> but th th that is a good point. I mean, shouldn't we be moving toward that? I mean, the states? Uh, been very <laughs> slow. Some people might say reluctant to uh, embrace AMI, which is m I, much I, I more think so. I think there's widespread embraced around yeah. the, the uh, rest of the country. I think there's there's widespread consensus that we need a much smarter grid and we need much better data everywhere to be able to do that. So I think there's agreement on that. And I think from the from the software provider and control, um, kind of the brains, one of the brains behind the operations, which is what Centrica is aspiring to be, uh, very interested in, in the electric vehicle market and are kind of getting a head start over in the United Kingdom um, via our British gas business, um, but very interested here as well. And I think one of the drivers, let's just bring the client's voice into the room for a second. So all those clients I mentioned earlier, we send a survey out to them annually and we ask them, what do they think about energy? What are the kind of top of mind issues for them? And what we've heard from our CNI clients is 
that 70% of them are thinking about electric vehicle chargers. They actually look at themselves and think, well, I can be an adopter of the electric vehicle movement because my employees can charge at work. What they're not thinking about, and they've admitted, 50% of them have admitted they have not given any thought to the implications of their energy bill, to the infrastructure requirements, the investment required for that. And so that shows you right there that while people want to do it, they're not thinking about this additional cost, this increased peak. I'll give you a real life example. So our, our facility, our manufacturing facility in East Rutherford, uh, right here in New Jersey, we are building, we're putting three chargers at the facility right now, two L3s and an L2. And uh, we have 150 kilowatt peak there. If three come in uh, and charge at the same time at our peak, our peak will double, right? And so that will have financial implications to us. Luckily, we're in the business, right? So we are also building solar plus storage at that facility, uh, which will hopefully you know, mitigate that. But it's just a point to kind of bring in some data into the room and know what clients are really thinking about at this stage in the adoption curve, which is just very, very early days. It seems to be an argument what Tom was saying. Uh, for if it do, uh, if you're putting in solar, you should also put in uh, storage or vice versa. If you're going to do storage, you need solar to deal with that cost. Well, this is what's so exciting. I mean, it, it, it's disruptive right now. What's going on in the grid? Uh, it's chaotic for sure, um, but it's like creative chaos and. If we're smart about it, um, we, we could have a much more resilient, lower cost, cleaner grid. Uh, and we are moving that direction. It's just little bumps and starts. So when someone comes to your, uh, if you have EV charging stations at, uh, at your business and your employees come in, yes, if they all charge at the same time, your demand charge is going to go way, way up. Well, you can manage that. Um, EDF bought a couple of companies recently one called PowerFlex, and it, that's exactly what it does, is it manage uh, charging. Uh, the vehicle to grid that uh, Mark was talking about is another way to do it, having energy storage there, and just using the controls uh, wisely and smoothing out the grid. And ultimately, the whole idea is that instead of having this crazy extra capacity just to, just to meet the demand at peak times, uh, and, and having that sit idle, whatever, 70, 80% of the time. The idea is that let's not keep building that uh, generation. Let's just use what we have more efficiently, and storage is one way to do it, or managing wind and solar properly is a way to do it, to flatten out the curve. Uh, that's more efficient and cheaper than what we're doing right now. No, I think when you look at this problem that you were describing about any commercial enterprise that wants to put in a bunch of chargers could potentially have a really significant and negative impact on their costs because of the demand charges. And you think through all the different ways that you need to deal with that, I think it gives us a hint about what this market needs to look like. Um, and in my view anyway, it's not going to be, a lot of people say, well, should it be utilities or should it be done by you know, competitive entities and so on. My answer is that, that we really need an ecosystem here. There's going to be multiple market participants. We need to be more clear about what the roles of those participants might be. But in the specific case we're talking about, for example, utilities can really help with that in the rate design and how they, how they design the rates for those entities to reflect the fact that you've got EVs 
in combination with commercial providers like Tom mentioned, providing control systems and other things that help do that. We need both of those. So I think the market, whether it's the market for EVs or the markets for storage or any of these advanced clean energy solutions, we really need an ecosystem of providers. And where regulation can help is to clarify what some of the roles and responsibilities are. What is the right role for a utility in helping to solve these solutions? I, some people would say the role is zero. I don't think it's zero. I think there are some parts of this problem that only a utility can address. Um, so the utilities absolutely need to be there. And there are lots of things that the competitive market is best at doing. So the real challenge is, is really a market structure question of how do we design that ecosystem, define the roles and responsibilities and the economic structures that go along with that so that these multiple parties can sort of combine together to create this complicated thing that we need. You seem to be arguing that uh, the state needs to make decisions about that. That whole issue is being debated now and with uh, EV charging. What role utilities play when you have a private uh, the competitive market out there, though they seem to be wanting to team with the utilities, if uh, I'm reading the sentiments of the charging people, right? That's right. I mean, the, uh, I'm working with nine different utilities in five different states right now on uh, EV filings. And what I find across a lot of territories is there's, and this is a big change in even a year, is there's a lot more consensus now that EVs are a really big deal, it's going to happen, and it could be really, really beneficial for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. That's not really the question. The question is, okay, given all that, how should we set up the market structure and what's the appropriate role for these different entities? So it's not just a question about is there a positive benefit cost? There is. Um, it's also a question about from a strategy and regulatory perspective, what should the role of these different entities be? And that applies in EVs. Um, and it applies for storage uh, and, and even other things we want to do on renewables. And in my view, at least, is that um, sometimes the conversation sort of gets simplified to an either-or kind of discussion, and a lot of people will get on a stage like this and debate why it should be a competitive entity or a utility. Uh, I think that's missing the point. I think we need both. Uh, from my perspective, at least, there are clearly some parts of these problems that only a utility can do efficiently, uh, but there's that would needs to be done, in my view, in partnership with things that the competitive market is doing as well. And that's really the regulatory challenge, is figuring out how to, to come up with that structure the right way. It's not okay, the only yeah, challenge, I've gotten tons of questions from the audience, and I haven't asked any. Uh, <laughs> so I'll ask one, um, and this is about solar and storage. How do, uh, how do solar developers uh, get the know-how uh, to intel intelligently incorporate storage into their systems, or do they have it today? Tom, I guess you would argue they do. Just have them give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> or Alex. Or Alex. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is happening. Uh, so if you're an expert in solar and you don't know storage, there are companies like mine that have a lot of expertise in storage. We have over 380 megawatts of storage installed already. Um, and we have the capacity to uh, finance projects and storage, even though it's risky. Um, and again, the value of having a balance sheet. Um, so we're happy to partner with uh, solar developers and, and be the solar, uh, sorry, the storage part of that. What's the mix of that? Is that, I mean, what percentage of your solar projects 
uh, have a storage component? Uh, right now? Yeah. Not that many. Um, it's because it's all emerging. I mean, we've committed to putting storage in our utility scale. Uh, on the CNI side, uh, we have we have a project at San Diego Zoo. We've got a project at Salesforce. I did a project up in uh, Ontario, all storage. Um, and when you look at New Jersey, because of it still should be a good solar market, um, you could add storage to it here and, and make the numbers work. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, as a consulting firm, um, we, we work with both end consumers that are doing projects, and we also work with a bunch of project developers. Um, so we'd be happy to help anybody that's interested in, in learning fast. But that's really the big point, is there is a lot to learn about this stuff. There are a lot of things to, that go wrong. Um, and so if, if you're trying to figure out how to be part of this brave new world, try and find folks that have some real world experience in doing this and then leverage their expertise to help you get smarter faster. This is not the kind of market where you want to learn through a bunch of failures um, because there's other people that have already done that and it would be to your advantage to take advantage of that. So, you know, there are a variety of consulting firms and commercial entities that can help you do that and it's to your advantage to reach out to those folks that have already been through the fire. Hypothetically we're all, we're speaking, all plugging. I yeah. can't. No, I'm going to get you know in trouble here. So, Centric Business Solutions is also here to help you um, in solar plus storage development. And I'll just say, you know, from that perspective, I think it's really important to remember that while solar developers are out there, kind of they have their core competency, the evaluation of the economics is quite simple at this point. It's a dollar per kilowatt hour rate, you're charging the client, or it's some kind of lease payment, or they're paying for it up front. The second you add storage, the economics change, and the economic evaluation change. The type of person that, store, that solar developer has working for them doing that economic modeling just changed. So that's why I think the benefit of using one of the larger firms that has some experience um, can really be beneficial to partner with someone like that who has that talent and expertise to really do that economic valuation modeling. The Assemblyman earlier brought up an issue that I think is important about um, the enormous economic divide uh, in New Jersey and lower uh, moderate income people haven't, uh, to some people's perspective, enjoyed a lot of the benefits of the clean energy uh, revolution happening here. How do we uh, structure uh, the system to uh, ensure they participate in energy storage and microgrids? And does that require carve-outs? That might be a question for them, not for, for me. I, I would clearly believe uh, and argue that we have to, as we look at the long-term solutions, have to look at the short-term implications. So whether that's a carve-out or whether that is some sort of structural acknowledgement of the ratepayer, uh, you know, that is a debate but is it has to be a key piece of this. I think the, the real question is, from a regulatory perspective, right, uh, whether you're turning to the utilities, the BPU, uh, whether you're moving up to FERC and PJM, uh, you know, what is the correct model to do this that has a flexibility for sh understanding the short-term implications, but then an adaptability at the same time? Because we know 
too often we put regulations into place that uh, are more reactionary. And our regulations and legislation that deal with an immediate issue, but then cause many of the issues that we're, we're struggling with right now, whether you're talking about smart metering, whether you're talking about new regulatory structures, whether you're talking about peak loads, uh, and we can't adapt so quickly. So I think that to me is the key question as we put these regulations or start to think about putting these regulations into place. But I don't have the answer. I would, I would pass it on to those who are right in the middle of this and I'll just implement them. So um, from an EV perspective, I mean, this is a very interesting question from an EV perspective and what I'm about to say applies to storage as well. Uh, the folks living in our low income and environmental justice communities are living in the most polluted places in the state, um, especially regarding air quality. Um, and we could spend an entire session talking about the public health crisis that goes along with air pollution. Electric vehicle, a lot of that air pollution comes from vehicles, all right? So the more we can get people into electric vehicles and displace that mobile source of pollution, those people in those currently high-density, low-income environmental justice communities will benefit. So when we did the benefit-cost analysis for EVs in New Jersey, we specifically pulled out what's the environmental impact overall, and you can show that, that there will be, just like those communities suffer disproportionately because of pollution, they also benefit disproportionately because of cleaning that pollution up. Now, to your question about quotas, if the goal, if you've got someone that's living right by, you know, I-80, um, it may not be that the best way to help that person is to put a charger right near their house. What you really want to do is get all those cars that are driving by that house to use electric miles rather than gas miles. So uh, the problem I've seen with where carve-outs have been implemented is sometimes it forces really dumb solutions that actually aren't helping the people that you're trying to help. So we need to be smart enough to realize you know, how electrification is gonna benefit folks and then do the structures, whatever they are, to help make that happen. But the bottom line is the more electric, electrically fueled miles we have, the better, and it'll be especially beneficial for those low income and EJ communities. And we can quantify what those impacts are. Go, Go ahead. Well, I was going to mention that I think that for the urban economic justice communities in particular, this gets right back to the locational value of storage, right? And so those areas are congested, they're urban, they're places where you probably wanna drop a battery, right, to help the grid. And, and those benefits, that locational benefit can be passed to that community. So that's one area that could be an interesting area. And the second, I think, is community solar. Right? So community solar, again, to the urban communities, and this is not just for uh, economic justice communities, but but all communities and folks who are trying to participate in the carbon reduction movement here, and all these folks who are going to be protesting today and this weekend, right? They they want to participate, but it also provides savings, right? So if you are able to buy solar via a community solar project and it gives you savings, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you reduce your electricity bill? So I, I would argue that um, if you make the grid more efficient and, and cleaner, that benefits everyone, all ratepayers at any level. Okay, that's one thing. But if you want to uh, allow low and moderate income uh, people to directly benefit, um, so the community solar pr uh, program is a good one. Um, we, we just bid into the pilot. We'll see what happens. We're putting five, 
we're proposing to put five megawatts on a brownfield uh, in New Jersey, and 51% of that output will go to low and moderate income people. So that's, they've prescribed that, we get extra points for that, fine. So those are incentives that are good incentives. If you wanted to add storage to that, make it more resilient so they'd actually have backup power in their, in their uh, home, great. Provide an incentive and believe me, the, the industry will figure out a way to make that happen. Uh, one little, maybe it's a question, I don't know if it's a pushback. Uh, as Dr. Conaway knows well, you know, if we look in, or here we are in, Nur in Newark, uh, asthma rates are increasing uh, global warming, the actual warming uh, of the earth is having an enormous impact on vulnerable communities. So my, it's a question in the form of a pushback, which is that if I hear you correctly, there seems to be an assumption that if we put storage or microgrids locally, that that will have an immediate impact on that community. But doesn't that miss on the fact that air pollution is regional, let's say, right? And so I agree with you, if we're gonna look at the turnpike, um, sure, you know, those, those are trucks and buses coming from up and down the Northeast corridor, or if it's 80, it's coming east-west. But it seems to me that the challenge, and this is my question for you, is it's so much bigger than, and more problematic than simply dropping a community solar into a, a economically challenged community. Because sure, that helps. Yes, there's incentives and, and, and benefits there. But it seems to me that it is really just chipping away at a much bigger problem that is having a disproportionate impact on our lower income communities. So am I right? I mean, I don't know the answer to that, but that's what I was thinking as you were, everyone was talking. Um, so there's probably a whole panel we could do just on that, on that discussion, but let me make two points. Um, one is some of the things that we're talking about here represent a profound change in the participation level in these solutions. So I've been working in solar for 20 years Anybody in this room that works in solar knows that one of the challenges is not everybody can do solar. If your house or your building is facing the wrong way or has structural issues. So the reality is, is something like 20% of the buildings, if we're lucky, are going to be able to do solar. Uh, and that's limited. We, you know, we need as many people as possible to be part of these solutions to get to the numbers that we want to get to. So the way we've done solar so far has been great, but eventually you run out of the easy cases. Community solar is a profound shift because now everybody can participate in that market. And we can do it with systems that are more cost effective. It's a lot more cost effective to build a five megawatt array that gets shared by a bunch of people rather than to build a bunch of small ones. But the main point is that now, once we really build out community solar, there's no reason that 100% of the consumers in New Jersey couldn't be participating in a renewable energy solution. So uh, that's profound. Electric vehicles have a similar change in participation. Uh, many people in this state own a vehicle, and uh, the, the light-duty vehicle fleet in New Jersey turns over about every 11 years. So between now and 2050, we've got three chances to get every time somebody buys that next car that they buy an electric car instead of what they otherwise would have bought. So EVs and community solar profoundly change the level of engagement that can happen in the community, and that's what's going to allow us to get to the bigger numbers. Now, to the other point you're making, um, there, are some, um, there are some complicated topology issues about when we change 
EV, when we use EVs, for example, that maybe displaces pollution at the tailpipe, but now you have more pollution at power plants, right? And so we need to account for those kinds of dynamics. Turns out that the efficiencies and the, the change in efficiency is so large, I think you still come out ahead. But what the point I really want to make is that this isn't happening in a vacuum. Uh, if we do EVs, simultaneous with doing the renewable energy objectives that we have in the state, there's a huge synergy going on between those two. Because uh, right now, if you do a kilowatt of solar, that's displacing a kilowatt of either nuclear or fuel generation. But if we now have a lot of EVs in the mix, you're also now displacing a very inefficient engine burning gasoline. And it turns out that's an even bigger impact than the impacts we're having today. And then conversely, the more generation comes from clean sources, the more the cleanup factor of EV adoption really is. So one of the conclusions from our study is, and we're actually doing a study now to, to go into this in much more detail, um, is that if you do EVs and renewable energy at the same time, both of those become much more valuable than they would have otherwise been. And I think we have to look at some of these community level impacts in the context of that broader thing happening. Well, I got a astute observation very, uh, from a very uh, effective former Board of Public Utilities president who <laughs> suggested uh, if we do uh, first concentrate on replacing diesel fleets and trucks and buses uh, with EVs, um, you, you get a emission reduction and health improvements. Why aren't we going in that direction? I guess that's the sort of the point of the question. Well, to the hypothetical asker of the question, um, yeah, I think we should do both. I, again, I don't think it's either or. The, the, the advantage of the light duty fleet is that's where you get to the big numbers and when you really peel back, you know, where the pollution comes from and so on. And especially if we want to get to, you know, the communities that we're talking about, that makes a big difference. But there is a huge benefit for diesel displacement and the study that we're doing now is actually adding in that piece to our analysis. Um, and I'll give you a really obvious one that everybody gets excited about right away, which is electric school buses. Those are now becoming fairly proven solutions. Um, having studied this a little bit, I will tell you that the dirtiest place in this state is in the back of a school bus. And we put our kids there twice a day. We now have a better solution. And what I like about school buses is electric school buses. It's a very targeted thing. We know how many they are. We know where they are. We can, you can sort of get your hands around it. We don't have to get six million people to agree. Um, only a small number of people need to, to sort of agree to this to make it happen. It's a huge p health benefit for our kids and the communities that those kids live in. So talk about having local impact, that's huge. And as a guy that's trying to help building the electric vehicle market, I think it really helps develop the market because now if those parents are seeing their kids being dropped off in an electric school bus every day, that could help them be more open to thinking about an electric vehicle the next time they buy a car. So there is huge upside to, to promoting electric, electric school buses and electrification for our other um, public transit authorities as may exist. Yeah, just a comment on that from a I'm not an expert at New, Jer New Jersey Transit or some of the transit authorities, but we've looked at some of these uh, challenges just on the infrastructure side of being able to enable somebody like a, a New Jersey Transit Depot that may have 50 or 75 buses coming through and the up upgrades that need to happen to bring that sort of capacity to a facility, let alone the physical modifications of the facility, are very significant. So you're talking about loads that are just orders of magnitude higher 
than, than what that facility is doing right now because right now it's some lights and maybe some HVAC or something like that. So I think that's a, that's a policy problem because you know, you're talking tens, hundreds of millions of dollars to bring higher voltage capacity and building a substation and things like that. Um, SEPTA, uh, know those folks really well done Philly, they said the same thing, they love the idea of it. Operationally, there are challenges, but they kind of thought they could work through them. It's, it's really uh, the, the electrical investment that unfortunately is a, is a big issue. I actually think it's also the investment in the buses themselves. Um, so the capital markets are still not very comfortable with the residual value of the bus. And so that's something that we'll have to get over. That's work like DMVGL is doing on testing the batteries, understanding the life cycle of them so that you can get a more accurate view on the residual value. So while it is a, it's sometimes a more expensive bus, also the financing right now is slightly more expensive because folks are taking a risk that they're not accustomed to taking. I would uh, encourage the assemblyman to look at this for school buses because, you know, from the private sector, it's it's kind of easy to define. You know when you need them charged. You know the time you can charge. So it seems like that would be a, a good one to, uh, to, fo to focus on. Okay. Good to know. I just, I just very quickly, this goes back to the point I made earlier. Um, there is a problem right now with electric school buses or New Jersey transit buses. The cut buses cost a lot more. There's a lot of charging of a structure that's needed. So there are some costs that right now we can't figure out how to pay for. But the way I think we should look at that is we're not just making an incentive investment to get a particular bus into a particular district. What we're really doing is investing in that market scaling up faster so that sooner rather than later, there isn't a price differential anymore. The majority of that cost difference is because of the cost of the batteries, and those are clearly coming down, and it'll come down faster the quicker we get to scale. So these investments that we're doing are investments in the scale of the industry that if we do the first 1,000 school buses, I just made that number up, but if we do the first 1,000 school buses with some help, and I realize that's hard, what you're really investing is not just those 1,000 buses, but the next 30,000 buses that now won't need your help. And, and that's the way I think it's, it's helpful to think about these programs that are being proposed as investments in quicker scale so that everybody can do this. And it goes back to the other thing. How do you monetize the asset? I mean, school buses, again, the timing is well known. Um, put solar on the school. When the kids are in school, the, the buses could be charging with solar. You could use those batteries off hours to bid into markets. I mean, there are a lot of ways to do this. We just need to... Um, we, we, we need to keep at it, provide the incentives or at least the, uh, the price signals that are necessary for the in, uh, private sector to invest. Okay, we're running out of time, I'm afraid. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. Their behavior in the face of a calamity that's, that's before 
Um, it's a great question. <laughs> I'm with you, believe me. Um, so a couple things are happening with in the energy market uh, or the electricity market. It, it had been, you know, just either really very little growth in, in demand, but there are a couple things that are happening right now that change that. One is electric vehicles. I mean, as the transportation sector gets electrified, that is a huge demand for electricity. Um, so that's good. The other thing, uh, whether you like it or not, is cannabis. Uh, cannabis requires a lot of energy. Um, I know, because the project we're doing in Ontario is a cannabis company. Um, which has been interesting for me. Uh, I've learned a lot about marijuana. Um, but they, because, it, because most of it's grown indoors. Isn't that what college is for, Tom, or is that? Uh... <laughs> yeah, no samples, no samples. Um, in order to grow indoors, you need a, a lot of light. And e e even with LED lights, it's huge uh, power demand. And also, they need the temperature to be right. So it's the heating and air conditioning, and it's the lights. It is a huge amount of energy. So, uh, so I, I, to answer your question, I think the demand is not going to uh, go down. I think we're going to have more and more reasons to, um, to use electricity. I'll give you another example. So Princeton University, I'm working on a solar project there now. Um, they're going to uh, move away from their gas-fired cogen system to a heat pump, a groundwater heat pump. Um, and I think you're going to see a lot more of that. Uh, again, demand for electricity, uh, uh, heat pump is driven by electricity. So to answer your question directly, um, at least I'm not assuming current demand. In fact, just the opposite of that, I'm assuming that demand is going to get a lot more complicated in a lot of ways as we move forward. And what we need to think about is that we've got, mo I mean, this panel was about a particular topic, but we've got multiple things happening at once. We need to do energy efficiency and demand management programs with a smarter grid, with market structures that make that work. At the same time that we're increasing renewable energy content, at the same time that we're electrifying what today are fueled applications like heat pumps, at the same time that we're doing electric vehicles, at the same time that we're trying to add storage. All of those things have to happen and are happening at the same time. Um, and I would argue that um, because, you know, you can't assume existing demand, we need to assume that demand's going to get crazier than it already is, and that's even more why we need to do those things. I would just respond somewhat differently since they're focused on the electrification piece. But we know, you know, New Jersey's a warehouse-filled state with large, enormous amount of square footage that is very little when it comes to insulation. So there are, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, PACE programs that provide both commercial and residential that we talk about how do we fund these different business models. When it comes to how do you get the initial capital up front and how do you then work through the return on investment uh, so that you can see this when it comes to a reduction in your energy costs. Right? And a few years ago, some of you may know, there was an enormous department, U.S. Department of Energy project, an energy efficiency building hub as part of an innovation hub. About $120 million of federal money went in to getting to these sort of questions of how do you do energy audits of, in particular, large warehouses? How do you then provide the capital up front to insulate these buildings, change their HVAC systems, et cetera? And then how do you work through the business model so that your, your owner knows what the return on investment and the time to return back that, that initial investment might be? 
these are things that are getting lost outside of the scope of this conversation uh, because it's not the topic. But this is by far, when it comes to climate change, where we started, where I started, the lowest of the lowest hanging fruits. We've got to reduce our energy demand. I think there are a few programs out there that have been successful and, you know, think about when you compare your neighbor on a bill, right? How am I doing compared to my neighbor? Um, there are some things that have been interesting kind of testers, I think, to to what you were trying to get at, which is the larger community aspect um, that's hitting us in more of a, you know, day to day. And, and you have to ask yourself, and I, and I don't know if any of us know the answer to the question, but is it going to be your utility, your utility bill that's changing your behavior, or is it your appliances, your vehicle, um, when you're turning on the lights? Is there an alert that says, "Hey, you know, my Nest is telling me this is not the time. Can you exist with a blanket instead?" You know, something like that. Where I, I do think that this is where the smart home, the all these kinds of devices that are coming into our homes, and with a millennial generation that is just completely accustomed, right? That's, I think, a little bit where the disruption may take place. And to your point, um, could that shift loads and peak loads? I, I think it could, uh, but it's going to take a lot of like, you know, everybody still wants their cold beer and their warm shower. They want to watch TV when they get home. They want to get on their Wi-Fi. There are certain things that they want, right? They want to plug in their phone. They don't want it to be close to dying. I mean, they're just things that people need. We need to all recognize that, right? People are not going to change those things. That's what's changing. Yeah. Yeah, so now I can have my wife and Alexa tell me to change the thermostat. <laughs> All right, I'm afraid we've run out of time. Um, I just want to thank our panel. I think they were excellent. Uh. We hope you enjoyed this program from NJ Spotlight. If you have comments or suggestions about these podcasts, please email info at njspotlight.com. Recording and post-production services for this podcast provided by State Broadcast News, a division of the Lubetkin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, on the web at statebroadcastnews.com. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.